Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. The Gospel of Mark. I'd like to remind everybody, remember, next Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, so that is an excellent time to be inviting someone uh, that would not normally come to church to come to church on that Sunday, uh, because the gospel, of course, is going to be preached. And um, they may not come any other time, so that's the opportunity we have to uh, just convince them that they ought to be there, especially if they haven't been coming in a long time. And uh, so that's going to be next week. Let's pray as we uh, begin this morning. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come before you in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Lord, um, we are humbled by the fact that, uh, especially, Lord, by what it took for us to be saved. We thank you, Lord, for your obedience to the Father. We thank you, Lord, for your humility in your first coming. We thank you, Lord, that um, everything that you said you would do has taken place. And, Lord, now we can freely preach the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves. And I pray, Lord, that we would always consider that to be an awesome privilege as believers and that we would not be silent about it to our family, our family, our friends, our neighbors. We would always be talking about the Lord in some way. Give us opportunities, those divine appointments, that we can actually give the gospel to someone. And Holy Spirit, we pray you convict them of, of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, and bring them to yourself like you brought us, Lord. I pray that we would rejoice in other people coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And I pray this in your name this morning. Amen. All right, we are in chapter 15 of Mark, and of course, uh, today we're going to be looking at, well, let me just back up for a second. Uh, it is uh, in the week, the Passion Week, it is Friday morning, it's about 5 or 6 a.m. in the morning where this is taking place, uh, all the way up until 9 in the morning. The Sanhedrin, of course, that's the ruling body of Israel, uh, had condemned Jesus in a night trial, but they had to wait for dawn, for the sun to rise, to convene an official uh, trial and to endorse their decision. And that decision was to condemn Jesus to death. The members of the Sanhedrin, once they had that trial, started to mock Jesus, to beat Jesus, and to abuse the Lord. And so Jesus was led uh, from the Jewish leadership uh, to this next second stage of, uh, and then of course the third stage to his trial. And this third stage, again, Friday morning, shortly after dawn, Jesus is formally condemned by the Sanhedrin with the backing of the Roman court. And so Jesus will be tried by a Roman court. And that's this morning we're going to look at the Roman trial of our servant Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's pick it up 
today in today's narrative in chapter 15 and notice verse number one. It says early in the morning, Mark chapter 15, verse one, early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation and binding Jesus, they led him away to be delivered to deliver him to Pilate. Now, these religious groups have come together as one unit for the sole purpose of legitimizing their night court verdict. The Sanhedrin needed the second council to pass a verdict of death because they could not pass a verdict of death themselves legally They weren't able to actually take and complete that. They actually had to have the Roman government do it. So the Jewish leadership wanted to move quickly, as quick as possible, to obtain a formal confirmation, and they wanted to do it early in the morning before anyone took notice. So they bound Jesus like a common criminal, and delivered him to the Gentiles. It says there in verse number one, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Now, Pilate was a judge who heard cases around between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. in the morning. So the Jewish council wanted Jesus to be on the docket as early as possible. So actually, Jesus had already told his disciples that this would take place. That was back in Mark chapter 10, verse 33, where Jesus said to his disciples that I will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn me to death and will hand me over to the Gentiles. So the Lord already told them probably in the second year of his ministry that that was going to take place. So This group uh, wanted Pilate to condemn Jesus to death based on the evidence of their night trial. Now, Pilate, being the good politician that he was, uh, would not accept uh, this at all, uh, but conducted his own investigation. Uh, Now, Mark doesn't record that, but the Gospel of John does record that. And so I want you to turn over to the Gospel of John, chapter 18, and verse number 29, and then we'll turn back to Mark. And we'll be going back and forth from Mark to John because John kind of fills in the blank for us, the blanks for us concerning what's going on here. But I want you to see it uh, because Pilate doesn't really accept their verdict. He wants to do his own investigation. And so in John chapter 18, notice verse number 29. It says, Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. Verse 31, So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. To fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. And so therefore, Pilate 
entered again in the, into the praetorium where often he held trials, and sometimes he, of course, did it in a first a private way and then in a more public way. Now, considering that, the, the first century account of the person of Jesus Christ is just as radical today as it was among the Jews in the first, in first century of Palestine. Radical because the testimony of the Gospel of Mark and in the other Gospels push against any preconceived expectations about who Jesus actually was, whether he was the Messiah or whether he was someone else. In other words, there is always a danger in misrepresenting the truth about Jesus and the essence of what real biblical faith is. And so that's why we're given the Gospels. We're given the Gospels so we can have a clear view and a clear understanding about who exactly Jesus is. Now, turn back to Mark chapter 15, and notice here that there's really going to be two things that we're going to be looking at this morning. One of is is the identity question, and secondly, it's, it's what do you do once you have concluded your understanding about who Jesus is? What do you do with that? Right, so the question, who is Jesus? Who is he has reverberated all through the Gospel of Mark. Back in chapter 4, remember, people would say, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And then, of course, the people would say, uh, Jesus would say to them, who do people say that I am? Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Others say one of the prophets. And Jesus, of course, always said to his disciples, well, who do you say that I am? And, of course, Peter gave that awesome answer that he got from heaven, thou art the Christ. You are the Messiah. So the Gospel of Mark moves us beyond preconceived notions of who Jesus is supposed to be to actually who he is. And so the question, who do you perceive Jesus to be, becomes the most important question that you will ever answer. It is the most important question you will ever answer. And the reason why is is if you get it wrong, you get eternity wrong. If you get it wrong, you get almost everything wrong. So here we come in our passage to the identity question about who Jesus is. A person... A person's choice or rejection of Jesus will indicate if that person understands who Jesus is and as taught from the scripture, as taught from the very mouth of the apostles and the Lord himself. So let us look at the identity question because this is Pilate's inquiry. Pilate, in a private examination in the praetorium, notice what he says in verse number two. Pilate, this is Mark 15, verse 2, Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? Pretty short, direct question. See, Pilate was not concerned about the charge of blasphemy. His concern was if Jesus would be found guilty of treason. So hence, 
Pilate's specific question. Are you the king of the Jews? So he was trying to find out from Jesus, is Jesus going to mount a hostile takeover of the Roman government and replace it with his own government? That was pretty much why he was asking that. Jesus does answer in verse number 2. He answered him, and what did he say? It is as you say. That's it. It is Now, that's, that's how Mark records it. And Mark, remember, is always recording it to move things quickly through the narrative. He's not stopping and giving details. He is just moving us through the event so we feel like we're there. Now, again, take your Bibles. You might as well keep your hand there in John chapter 18. John chapter 18, because John, again, fills in some of the blanks. And I want you to notice that Jesus expands on his answer to Pilate. Because what he really says to Pilate in this passage is that my kingdom is not to be thought of specifically as a political kingdom. Look at in John chapter 18, verse 33. It says, therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Verse 37, therefore Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And of course, right after that, what is... Pilate say, ah, what's truth? I mean, even in his day, people didn't know what truth was. Couldn't define it, couldn't nail it down. Today, it's even worse. Truth. Well, I don't know what truth is. Truth is anything you want it to be, right? Whether it can be factually proved or not, it doesn't matter. Whatever you want it to be. That's what truth is today. No, truth is something that is, can be substantiated, can be proved as to its truthfulness. So, uh, back to Mark chapter 15. Sorry about this, but we're going back and forth a little bit. So the chief priest must have been in earshot of what Jesus was saying because their reaction was harsh and accusatory by giving a list of charges against Jesus. Now, notice what it says in Mark chapter 15, verse 3. The chief priest began to accuse him harshly Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you? Now, what are some of the charges they could have brought against him that Mark does not record? Well, from the rest of the Gospel of Mark, the destruction of the temple, right? Blasphemy, political threat to Rome, that he does things by the power of Beelzebub or demons, that he's a revolutionary zealot, right? 
That's what they could have, the list would go on with them, and they just were accusing him because they did not want Pilate to change his direction on where he was going with this. They wanted to direct and guide everything he was doing. So, yes, Jesus affirms that he is a king in a short answer, and then he just remained silent. Of course, this is the second great silence of Jesus, uh, where the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53 comes in, that he didn't open his mouth uh, when he was brought before the shearers. He kept silent. But in spite of this, Pilate did not act like, Pilate did not think Jesus acted like a king, nor did he speak like a king. See, so Pilate did not see a threat in Jesus to overthrow the government of Rome. Again, in Mark, uh, John 18, don't turn there, but verse 28 says, and Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. This guy is innocent from my perspective. Now, in legal proceedings in Rome, under Roman law, they centered on three things when they actually examined someone. First of all, what are the charges? All right? That's a good way of place to start, start, right? Secondly, what's the accused response to the charges? And thirdly, then we can make a decision. But the problem is, is that Jesus gives no response specifically to their charges. He has satisfactorily answered the question to Pilate that he was a king and his kingdom wasn't of this realm. Pilate was satisfied with that. I don't see any, I don't see, he doesn't have any armies with him. He doesn't have any, uh, you know, any weapons with him. It doesn't look like he's never been a revolutionary from his understanding. There's no past charges against him from any part of the government. So the guy must be innocent. So what is Pilate's response to Jesus' silence? Notice in verse number 5 of uh, chapter 15. But Jesus said, made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Now, Pilate knew the charges against Jesus were false, yet Jesus was content to endure the contradiction of sinners against himself. He was innocent of all charges and yet made no defense, but submitted himself to the groundless accusations made against him without complaint, without murmur, and without argument. So Pilate's response was he was amazed at this because, listen, if you were innocent and all these charges were brought against you, and then someone in the government said that you were innocent, what would you be doing, being silent? No, you would be listening to reasons why you are innocent, right? Jesus is silent. He is silent. Of course, this is all fulfilling prophecy too, because it says in Hebrews, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. So that you will grow, not will grow weary or lose heart. So here's a really a, a good lesson to learn from our Savior's example. To learn to suffer patiently. 
and not grumble and complain in whatever God sees fit to bring into our lives. That we would not, that we really would not sin with our tongues, that we would not sin with our tempers, but patiently endure, for we know nothing in the, the Christian character really satisfies or glorifies God so much as patient suffering. It was even, remember, Mark is using Peter's uh, witness of to write this gospel. And so Peter records for us in 1 Peter chapter 2 about this particular thing. And it says, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it patiently and patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So this is part of following in the steps of Jesus to have a conduct for whatever God brings into your life, a conduct of bearing it with patience, bearing it without complaint, bearing it without grumbling, bearing it where we know how to hold our tongues and know how to hold down our tempers for the sake of bearing something patiently for, because it pleases the Lord. It, it, the Lord finds favor in that kind of conduct. And when we do so, we act like our Lord himself. And that's what disciples ought to do. They ought to be acting like Jesus. So, so take notice of this second thing in the narrative, the choice based on one's answer to the identity question of who Jesus is. Is he king? Is he Messiah? Is he criminal? Is he evildoer? What is he? Well, we're going to find in this next section of the Gospel of Mark that the innocent is actually rejected in the place of the lawless one. And notice uh, in our text, now, if, if someone is convinced of another of another's innocence, what would he do? Well, what does Pilate do? Pilate was trying to delay and sidetrack the Jews and possibly uh, to obtain Jesus' acquittal and to satisfy his own conscience, of course. So he, what does he do? He makes a counteroffer. And I want you to notice the counteroffer starting in verse 6. It says, now at the feast... He used to release, that's Pilate, for, for them any one prisoner whom they requested. So obviously there was this thing uh, called the Paschal Amnesty uh, where a Roman judge could pardon the accused based on the crowd's insistence. It had to be practiced during a feast, and usually it was done at Passover, and this is Passover, all right? And the Roman law could either, you can either acquit somebody be tr before trial, or you can actually acquit someone after trial, either one. So the, this festival custom was a, uh, a way to satisfy the crowd and poss a possible way to get Jesus released. That's what was in Pilate's mind. Pilate's a uh, custom was to release, and the people's custom was to beg him to release a person of their choice. 
that was the deal. It was more like, to me, a game that they were playing. Uh, Because there's only two names on the docket. Remember, he only can choose one name. Jesus is on the docket. Jesus was not found to be guilty by the Roman court. He never was, actually. And then on the docket is also verse number 7. The man named Barabbas has been in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. So, who do we have here? We have Barabbas, who is a notorious criminal, a robber, a murderer, and an insurrectionist. So it's either Barabbas or it is Jesus. Well, you know, Barabbas's name, Bar, Bar, Abba, you know, Abba, you know, we, we say Abba meaning father, right? Bar meaning son, right? So his name actually meant Bar, son of the father. Uh, some people, some old manuscripts has Jesus Bar, uh, Jesus Bar uh, Barabbas, right? That's probably not in the text in anything that I looked at. It wasn't uh, there in any kind of major manuscripts, all right? But it's ironic that the true son of the father will die in the place of the wicked son of the father. So it's kind of like a play here, uh, maybe with this name. And so what happens at this particular time is now that this is out there and Pilate has, had, had announced to the crowd what he was going to do, the crowd, of course, were, were, was to make a choice. But who's in that crowd? Look at verse number 8. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. So obviously they knew about this custom, but the crowd here assembled with the intention of demanding the release of Barabbas. So then they were probably, in fact, a most of them would be a mob of Barabbas supporters that were in that cr- crowd. So what was Pilate's offer again? In verse number 9, Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Now, if you notice, Pilate seemed to think that he could get Jesus released and play the people against the Sanhedrinists. And by custom, Pilate could deliver to the crowd one whomever they wanted, but he keeps Jesus in the forefront. He doesn't mention Barabbas at all. And so... He also knows this about what's going on behind the scenes. Notice in verse number 10. And remember, there's always motive that's going on. Notice in verse number 10. When he was aware of the chief priest, and he was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. All right? So Pilate was discerning enough to know that it was envy of the chief priest which really moved them to deliver up Jesus. Jesus had been too influential with the common people. So there was a jealousy among the chief priests which fueled their motives against Christ, against Jesus. And so the counteroffer by the chief priests was quickly Ignored, actually, because notice in verse number 11, the crowd is is stirred up to jealousy. It says, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd 
to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. So the high priests were determined to influence the outcome of the vote by preferring Barabbas over Jesus. Now, why did they do that? Because at least Barabbas tried to overthrow the Roman government, but failed. That's why he was an insurrectionist. An insurrectionist is someone who tries to overthrow a government. All right? He was also, Barabbas was sick of the oppression the Romans were putting on the Jews, and so he tried to do it. He got caught, he, he got put in pr- prison, and in the end, he also murdered somebody in the process. So Jesus, they thought, as the Messiah would have overthrown the Roman government and established the Messianic kingdom, but here Jesus stood silent, passive, and helpless. So to them, he was nothing like the Messiah they were hoping for. And so the crowd was easily being influenced by the jealous group of high priests and rulers of Israel And so Pilate, again, is trying to hold it off. He doesn't want Jesus uh, to be crucified. He does not want Jesus to do that. And so notice in verse number 12, here's the Pilate's offer again. Pilate, it says, answering again, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with him whom you call king of the Jews? See, Pilate is, is willing to release Jesus if That was the wish of the crowd. Now, even though Mark does not record this, and Matthew records this, right at that particular point, what happens? He gets a memo from his wife. He gets a message from his wife. And Pilate's wife exhorted him not to allow the execution of this one called Jesus. And listen what it says in Matthew. It says, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, His wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. So you see that everything was being uh, put forward to uh, Pilate not to go forward with it. Uh, And so what happens is that the mob mentality takes over and uh, the crowd really had no goodwill towards Jesus at this particular point. And it says in verse number uh, 13, they shouted back, crucify him. And verse 14, and Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate is saying, listen, this man is innocent, and no one has proved to me any evil that he has done. No one's proved to me anything. There was no evidence. So Pilate tries to reason with the crowd because he saw the injustices in their cries, uh, and especially the cries of an unhinged mob. There's no reasoning in a mob. A mob just goes, goes, to, uh, goes with the flow, and whoever is leading, they follow that leader. And, of course, the leader here was the chief priests, and the elders, because it even says uh, in, in the word of God in, in Matthew that the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd uh, to ask for Barabbas to put Jesus to death. So see, the vote comes in loud and clear 
but they shout all the more, crucify him, crucify him. So Jesus is not condemned by the Roman court. He is never condemned by anybody. He is found innocent on all charges as far as Pilate is concerned. Instead, he is offered up by some festival custom and by a crowd persuaded by a jealous religious body who just wanted Jesus dead at all costs. So how did they choose? How did they choose in this case? When they came to their own understanding about answering that question, the identity question about who Jesus actually is, well, they chose in accord with their own sinful and wicked heart. They chose a lawbreaker instead of Jesus. They chose a man of blood instead of the prince of peace. They chose hatred and violence instead of the mercy and love of God. So Jesus and Barabbas stood for two different ways. Jesus' way of mercy, grace, and love, and Barabbas' way of hatred, bitterness, and war. But have you ever ever considered the constant patterns that bombard us in the news every single day? Headlines are filled with really pretty much the same basic themes. Violence, destruction, death. Right? That's what sells the news. I can't predict the headlines of this following week, but I am sadly confident that the themes will not change. The themes will be the same. Violence, destruction, death. There will be some other country that someone needs to bomb. There will be someone who will be killed and beheaded. There will be someone who shoots another person, right? The violence is just rampant all over the place. Almost, you almost get to the point where you're sick of hearing it. Yet, that is reality. Sometimes we wonder how long the depressing catalog of evils in this world will continue, but they will. In fact, if you ever read Habakkuk, that's an Old Testament minor prophet, he had some questions for God in this particular vein, such as, why does God tolerate wrong? Why is the world as it is? Why does God allow evils that stalk the world in which we live today? Well, here is Habakkuk's profound question. And let me read to you from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. But just listen what he says. It says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Man, that passage just sounds like today's news. 
what's going on right now. You know why it's never, it's not changed. The heart of man has not changed. The motives driving governments have not changed. We should never depend on any of those things. Armies are not going to produce what God can produce. Just imagine picking up the Jerusalem Tribune newspaper after sun, the sun goes down on the Sabbath during this time. You would find news about what? Violence, destruction, dead. Oh, here's the title, a would-be king crucified on Golgotha outside the city of Jerusalem. That would be the news. Now, saying that, the Bible is the revelation of God, and it tells us about his plan for the world. See, the Bible tells us that the world belongs to God and that he has his reasons for tolerating evil for a time. God has his reasons for tolerating evil for a time. See, God tells us that in the end, evil will be brought to nothing, and the whole world will be filled with the glory of God. That's what the scriptures tell us, and that will happen someday. Well, in Christ's day, it was still hard to get justice which was now in the hands of a politically motivated judge named Pontius Pilate. Now, I want you to notice in verse number 15, because look and see what really, how the matter concludes. Pilate cowers and caves in. And what does he do? Well, you know, it just shows you here he's just a good politician when it comes right down to it. I'm going to do what the people say so I don't mess my position up, right? Look what it says in verse number 15. It says, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. So, see, Pilate is willing, like a good politician, to satisfy the people's wishes, And then, of course, it tells us in Matthew that he washes his hands of the matter to clear himself of the responsibility for the death of Jesus, if that was to take place. And then what does he do? He releases the criminal, Barabbas, and he has Jesus, the innocent, scourged. Now, he hoped that possibly the scourging might avoid crucifixion and the people would feel sorry enough for Jesus to release him. But there was a prophecy in this here, because it says in Mark 10, 34, that they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later, he will rise again. The scourge was a long leather thong really studded with uh, sharp pieces of metal and bone and it literally tore a person's back to ribbons. Many of the Jews were not allowed to give more than, uh, it had to be less than 40 lashes, because they knew after 40, people would just die. They would go into shock. They would go unconscious. Some would even go mad because of of the, the severity of the treatment. It was no light punishment. Jesus was already beaten 
uh, been beaten for three hours already. And so there's a lot of stuff going on here. And, and Jesus, the guiltless one, is handed over for crucifixion. He is handed over to be crucified on the cross. Now just think again what's happening here. A couple of false witnesses take the stand in court and tell lies in an already pre-judged jewelry. Why would God allow that? Soldiers stand in a circle around a man whose hands are tied, and they strike him and spit upon him. They place a, a crown of thorns on his head, and it looks like violence and destruction to me. Why would God allow that? An innocent man is nailed to the cross. He dies in agony. He cries out, my God, my God, why? Well, here's why. Because God allowed evil to have its day and use that evil to accomplish his own purpose. In the words of Professor Colin Smith, he said this, God takes the power of evil and uses its own momentum to bring about its own downfall. Satan's end becomes God's means. See, God used evil. If there was no evil, then all these things could not happen against Christ. If there was no death, then Jesus couldn't die. So, see, God used evil to accomplish what Christ was going to do on the cross for what? For us. So we learn a lesson from Barabbas. Barabbas was, Barabbas the guilty is set free and the innocent is put to death. Barabbas is spared and Christ is crucified. Now, let, let us remember what we are. We're corrupt. We're evil. We're miserable. That's how God sees us. We are all by nature in the position of Barabbas. We are guilty, wicked, worthy of condemnation. But here is our hope. It is God who pardons and justifies the ungodly. He does it because Christ has suffered in our place. We deserve eternal death, but a glorious Savior has died in our place. May we never rest until we can say by faith, Christ is mine. I deserve hell, but Christ has died for me. And believing in him, I have the hope of heaven. I have the hope of eternal life. So that's where this all leads. When faith looks at the cross, it sees more than terrible evil. Faith sees God at work and believes his promise. Faith sees that it is, that is why Christ came into the world. Faith reckons that if God has said Christ will save his people from their sins, then even death must be for that purpose. And it was. And if he did not die, we could not be saved. And that has been the problem all along in the gospel of Mark, is how can a Messiah, who's supposed to be a deliverer and a conqueror, die? But he had to 
And of course, after the resurrection, we will see that becomes very clear to the disciples. So today, have you answered the question of who Jesus is correctly? And responded appropriately? That is, to believe in Christ alone, repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus for salvation because that is the only correct response. And if that response is yours, then you can rejoice in that response. If that response is not yours, then you need to take your eternity seriously and consider that someday you will stand before this Jesus and a Christian will give an account but those who are unbelievers will also be judged by him. And so it's better to have Christ as your Savior than Christ as your judge. And so that's where the Gospels bring us. What are you going to do with Jesus? Because it could turn out like this. It can turn out just like this. I pray it doesn't. And I pray that the young people may come to a place where they trust and believe in Jesus Christ, that parents would be able to share the gospel with their children so their children can genuinely come to know Jesus Christ, and that we would not be silent about the message of the gospel of Christ and share it with others so they too can be saved. How are they going to know unless you tell them? How are they going to know without a preacher, right, without somebody proclaiming it? Well, you're the proclamation, you, to your family, your friends, your coworkers, you. So I pray this morning as we consider these things that all the injustices and the things that our our Lord went through for the very purpose for him to go to the cross in order for us to be saved. That is truth that we cannot forget. Um, It's a truth that we should never allow to become that we're complacent in and and just take it as nothing or just a story. It's way more than that. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, I, I do very much thank you, Lord, that your grace to us and mercy to us has been available and made available to us and is still made available to us every day. I pray, Lord, that we would consider it seriously. Thank you, Lord Jesus that you fulfilled prophecy in everything that took place and that you accomplished all that the prophets had said that would happen to you as the servant savior and you took it in a way that you laid the groundwork for salvation. You, the second Adam, did what the first Adam could have never done. You completely obeyed the Father and accomplished everything so we can be saved. Thank you, Lord, for that. And we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.